1: Hello there. Vapes and e-cigarettes entered the world as devices to help smokers quit, with advocates telling us they're a safe alternative to traditional cigarettes. However, new research from the ANU has found that vaping increases the risk of poisoning, addiction, seizures, burns and acute lung injury, and leads often to taking up smoking. This is Life Matters, I'm Michael McKenzie, and one of the challenges is how do we effectively convey those dangers to teenagers? Yes, vaping rates amongst teens are higher than other parts of the population, and experts are saying it's leading to a new generation of nicotine users. Up until now, anti-vaping campaigns aimed at teens have focused on the harmful contents of those e-liquids that go into vapes, with the New South Wales Department of Health asking, do you know what you're vaping? Nail polish remover. It removes the polish from your nails, of course, but did you know one of its main chemicals, acetone, strips paint from walls, takes rust off tools, is found in a lot of vapes? Do you know what you're vaping? Oh, that scares me. But do those kinds of messages really hit home with teenagers? Does it help change or modify behaviour? That's part of our discussion today here on Life Matters. Are you concerned about your teenagers vaping? Have you spoken to them about the health effects of e-cigarettes? You might have some ideas about what kinds of awareness campaigns could really hit the mark on this. If so, why don't you text me and tell tell me your thoughts. The text number is 0418. Eight double two six. That's in the Eastern Daylight Saving States, although Daylight Saving is finished, so it's just the Eastern States. 0418 226576. Or you can text via the ABC Listen app. My first guest today is Dr. Michelle John John Janellis, who is a Senior Research Fellow at the University of Melbourne. She's looking at how to minimise uptake of e-cigarettes and encourage cessation amongst Australian adolescents. Michelle also sits on the Australian Council of... Of smoking and Health. And if that's not enough, she's also uh, on the World Federation of Public Health Association's Tobacco Control Working Group. So I think she knows what she's talking about. Michelle, hello. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Michelle, um, vaping advocates have long argued that uh, that kind of way of taking in vapour into the lungs is a much safer alternative to cigarettes. Is that contention truly out the window now?
2: I mean, based on the evidence so far, it does look like uh, using an e cigarette is likely to be a little bit better than using a tobacco cigarette. But what we don't know is how much better. And, you know, there was a great quote by uh, John Skerritt, head of the TGA, at at a Senate review a couple of years ago, where he said, you know, if smoking a a tobacco cigarette is like getting hit by a 10 ton truck, then vaping an e cigarette might be like getting hit by a car. You really don't want to be getting hit by either. So, you know what we what we keep focusing on is this comparison to tobacco cigarettes but what we yeah. really need to be comparing e-cigarettes to is breathing clean air
1: okay but should we do some clarification right at the outset here about Vaping being uh, prescribed as a cessation method for existing smokers and perhaps its benefits in that realm compared to it being uh, uh, an unregulated uh, purchase often by teenagers illegally uh, with products inside the vaping juice that aren't actually on the label. Are Are there two different spheres here?
2: Uh, yes and no. So there are also issues with the prescribing of, of liquid nicotine. These products, even if you are going to your GP to, to get li- liquid nicotine for smoking cessation, the TGA hasn't yet approved any device or any legal Liquid in Australia for that purpose. So, while they are still allowing you to go to your GP and get a prescription for it if you're genuinely using these products to quit, uh, I do need to to point out that these products have yet to be approved as a th- therapeutic device. And the latest report from ANU shows that actually the evidence on whether they can help people quit smoking is, is still mixed. And that actually, uh, people who quit smoking ages ago who then decide to take up vaping are actually likely to relapse back to smoking after mm. vaping. So, there's a little bit of issues
1: there. yeah okay. Well today we're focusing on one of the, the, the more fo- well, most vulnerable groups, it seems to me, and that is uh, the teenagers 18 to 24s. I know you, at 24, you're not a teenager, but you can start in those years. And at the moment, what are the numbers on vape uptake in, in that part of our population?
2: Look, the prevalence of use in young adults is among the highest compared to any other age group, and we are getting increases in adolescents. So the latest figures, and these figures are unfortunately quite Quite uh, dated now because COVID throughout our um, ongoing monitoring systems. Right. So the last data we collected was back in 2018, and it was released 2019, and that showed that there was a tripling of use uh, from when we first started collecting data in, in 2013, and that was among adolescents. So we are seeing use skyrocket. Uh, we, we are expecting there to be even higher numbers when the new when the new figures come out in the next couple of years or so.
1: One of the uh, things that really struck me was an editorial that was written for the Sydney Morning Herald, Michelle, by Ari Katz, who was a high school student. And um, that is headlined, Vaping, a constant craving for too many of my school friends. And I thought I might just read a little bit of this out because I think it really goes to the heart of the attractions that vaping poses for adolescents and young brains. Ari says, and I quote, It started as a novelty, a bit of harmless fun. The snap, crackle and pop of each nicotine fueled hit was exciting, enticing. The headspin was a new experience. We felt rebellious, revolutionary, cool. Vapes then started appearing at parties, the beach, the cinema. But when friends started vaping regularly in the bathrooms at school... It became clear this device, resembling a coloured pen, bright and slim, concealing the fusion of wires, batteries and chemical compounds, was here to stay. Michelle, I, I thought that was very evocative of the kind of attractions that vape has posed for young people in this country.
2: Absolutely, and there's a couple of really great themes that he's touched on there. The first, of course, is is the nicotine addiction, which you know we don't we don't talk enough about. And adolescents, young adults, they have developing brains, and and the the intake of nicotine at this age can affect them in the long term, concentration, school grades, etc. And the problem is that a lot of the uh, e-cigarettes that are actually being targeted towards kids are disposable, and they're made with nicotine salt, not e-liquid nicotine. And that's a higher nicotine strength. It doesn't have that harsh throat feeling. So it means that children can inhale really high levels of nicotine more easily with less irritation and makes them a lot more palatable and a lot more appealing. And of course, you know, the other thing that the other theme that was mentioned in there is is the attractiveness of it in terms of the innovation and the, the, the electronics and the marketing. I mean, the, the industry isn't stupid. It knows exactly how it's going to get to kids. Let's give them the nicotine salts and let's package it up in a brightly colored pen.
1: And not tell them that there's actually nicotine in the product by the sound of it.
2: Absolutely. Yes. So lots of products out there that claim to be nicotine free, at least 60 to 70% of them when we test them in the lab have been found to have nicotine. So there's there's definitely some um, manipulation going on there by the industry.
1: Michelle, just before we introduce our next guest, uh, you mentioned that our numbers had tripled in terms of vape use by 18 to 24 year olds from what base to what kind of base now do you have i know they're outdated figures because of pandemic but can you just give us some numbers there
2: really tricky to give you guys some numbers based on based on the older figures right but we're looking at about up to 9 to 10% and that's um sort of more regular use obviously it depends on when you look at ever use if they've ever used one the numbers you know are, are incredibly high could be up to 20 30% um, but it would be remiss of me to to give a number okay. given that the data is 5 years old now
1: okay but we can say for sure that in terms of demographic 18 to 24s lead the country in red- Regular use of vape or vaping. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Okay, good to know. All right. Now, some texts coming in because I've been asking you on text today, 0418 226576, what kinds of education campaigns do you think could really hit home for those teens that are being so targeted by by vape manufacturers. Uh, This person says we need a large deposit on the vaping tubes refundable when returned to the retailer. That's one perspective. Another one says vaping. Wow, this sounds like a similar scenario to that in the 60s and 70s with tobacco use and teens, whole generations growing up with misinformation and avoidable health problems. Surely regulators can stop history repeating. A very good question to Uh, say there rhetorically jim let's see what we can do about that in the meantime uh, my second guest is professor susan sawyer she's the director of the rch center for adolescent health and susan hello there morning michael why is vaping susan so big amongst teens in particular what is it about their brain and and the marketing that goes together so well
3: Look, I don't think anyone could have said it better than Ari, who you quoted earlier. You know, they're easy to get products. They're cheap. They're marketed as a novelty, fun, uh, high-tech product that have flavours added, bubblegum, strawberry that are attracted, uh, that are highly attractive to young people. What's not to like about them if you're a young person? Most new trends start with the young, and these are being really
1: promoted to young people and reflected i would have to say and i'd like to hear what you think on this in social media social media influencers on instagram on tiktok on you know youtube as well seen uh, in either still shots or in video uh smoking uh vapes and them you know smoking that exhalation of vapor out through their nose and mouth in in very pretty ways
3: Absolutely. social media influences, music videos, these are all about the industry as a whole, making um, or if you like, normalizing smoking behaviour for young people for whom Australia has been, remember, incredibly successful at reducing smoking in young people. You know, 97% of 14 to 17 year olds no longer they, they don't smoke. They have never smoked now. So these this is a smoking naive population that uh, the vaping industry can't wait to get its hands on as the future generation of nicotine-addicted smokers.
1: And who's in the vaping industry, Susan? Is it still Big Tobacco?
3: Big Tobacco um, have increasingly bought up a large number of the major brands. So, yes, they are certainly a large part of it. But there's a whole lot of companies that are in this space. There are thousands and thousands of different companies selling vaping
1: products. Michelle mentioned uh, that often uh, the kinds of vaping products being marketed to teens say they don't contain nicotine when they do. Not every one of them, but a lot of them do contain nicotine. So that's false advertising for a start. Uh, right. and and surely, under the trade practices act, and uh, I would have thought within the kind of uh, well yeah the the advertising standards of this country surely they can can't they be prosecuted for that?
3: yeah, look it's because they're not deemed a therapeutic good um you know they're, they're not therefore marketed in the same way Michelle might um know a lot more about the detail of this. I must say it's the same question that I ask myself
1: right <laughs> why right. can't
3: these be regulated?
1: Michelle, can you help out in that area? Why aren't these kinds of breaches of advertising being policed?
2: Uh, We're getting a little bit better at it uh, with the change in the nicotine scheduling that came into effect in October 1. So because of that change in nicotine scheduling, it did get a lot easier for uh, our border force to know when product was entering the country without a prescription and then remove it from from the country. Uh, and it also is easier now for, you know, raids to happen on your local 7-Eleven who is selling nicotine products when they shouldn't be. So there has been an increase in in, in seizures since that October 1. So it, it is, we are getting there. It is getting better. Of course, it would just be easier to, to change the regulations to make it so that your 7-Eleven, can't sell these products at all, regardless of whether they contain nicotine or not. So there's definitely a lot more we can be doing in that space.
1: So, I mean, policing the regulations that are in force is one thing that needs to be addressed clearly. But Susan, what else, aside from nicotine and acetone, as we heard there in that New South Wales state government campaign, what else is in vape juice that just simply isn't talked about?
3: I, I think almost the question to ask is what's not in them. When you actually look at the list of um, uh, of uh, major toxic chemicals, I mean it just blows my mind. I mean the glycerin and propylene glycol form the basis of the juice, nicotine and flavorings um, as well. But when you break it down, as um, some researchers at Curtin University did a couple of years ago, they identified over two hundred and fifty different products. Um, in um, this is. 250 different chemicals in about 65 of the most common products. And these are the same sort of chemicals that are in pesticides, disinfectants, solvents, as you said. You know, we all know how toxic nail polish remover is. Yeah. Um, and it's also in the metals that are, in a sense, heated to create the aerosol. And these metals include chromium, nickel, iron, um, microplastics. You know, for example, um, there's been traces of um, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. These are linked to a wide variety of cancers in the lung, bladder, gastrointestinal cancers. There's no safe level of exposure of these. That same study found very high levels of benzaldehyde, which is a very toxic to the lung. It's a lung irritant. So there's this whole plethora of um, nasty chemicals, basically.
1: As we've been talking, this text came in, my daughter has recently experienced hair loss and has also been vaping. She says, well, he says, I've heard there can be a link. Can we please ask the experts on side effects? Susan, is that within your realm?
3: Look, I haven't heard of that side effect, to be honest. But then with the recent report from ANU that M- Professor Emily Banks led, one of the critical points that they made, I think very powerfully, was that we have so little evidence about um, the side effects, about the toxic profile of vaping. And so I think it's, these are important questions to be studying and are important reasons to try and think very seriously about the regulatory frameworks that we introduce in Australia.
1: We've talked about all the unknown but incredibly harmful products that are, when I say unknown, you've detailed them, Susan, but they're not known because when you buy the product, it's not there on the label like you do see on some other harmful products in the market. So what is going on inside the teenage brain when nicotine and all the other byproducts you mentioned there hit the brain? What, what does it do to a teenage brain?
3: Basically, um, it's the the pleasure responsive part of the brain that lights up. And with young people, what we know is that um, these parts of the brain are Uh, in a sense, relatively upregulated in comparison to how they are in in older adults. And so that the younger you are when you're exposed to nicotine, the more likely you are to become addicted. And when you ask most older adults who are long term tobacco smokers when they started smoking, most of them started under the age of 18.
1: So that's the market, isn't it? That's what they're going for. So I, I, I'm still really confused about, and maybe I'm just being naive, about the the clear black market behaviour that's going on in the wider marketplace that allows teens to access uh, vaping products. Michelle, John Jealous, can I come back to you on this? Because what is the missing link here in banning this for sale and yet it's still being on sale? What am I missing?
2: That is a great question and it's a question that we've been asking the government uh, for quite some time now. So if we've got the prescription model for those people who are genuinely using liquid nicotine to quit smoking, why do we still need to have the retail shop front Continuing to potentially sell these products, or well, not potentially, we know they are selling these products to adolescents who do not need to be using it. So we we would advocate stru- quite strongly for these retail shop fronts to be completely shut down so that there is only that proper pathway through your GP to be getting these products. So you're not alone in being confused about this. We are also very confused about why the government is not doing this. They are, there is some quite strong resistance from, from several backbenchers, um, you know, who may. Have uh, some conflicts of interest, given that uh, the nationals continue to receive funding from big tobacco. So you know let's let's continue asking the question and let's continue pushing government to be making some real changes in this space.
1: Okay, so policing and regulation, that's one side of this. The other side, as we mentioned to everybody listening at the front of this, is what kinds of education campaigns? hit the mark with teenagers who obviously are vaping because it's a seen as cool and b rebellious, which of course are two of the major trades for anyone of that age in trying to not be like their parents. Michelle, do you have any thoughts on how we may do this better?
2: Yeah, I mean there are a couple of things. Kids don't like to be manipulated and what the industry is doing is very clearly manipulating them. So while we can of course have those campaigns that that teach kids about the health effects, I do wonder and and obviously this is subject to to further analysis, I do wonder if actually the message that we could also be sending to kids is you're being manipulated here these industries you know these products aren't cool these industries are actually just wanting get wanting to get you addicted to nicotine and by using that you are playing right into their hands so do we need to sort of change change the framing around this to be around that there's also a really great for any parents or educators out there there's also a really great series on netflix called broken and there's a couple of episodes there there's one episode on e-cigarettes but i'm actually going to direct parents and educators to the episode on uh, makeup counterfeit makeup it's called makeup mayhem and that really talks about how makeup is produced in developing countries it's made in bathtubs that's exactly how some of these e-liquids are made these e-liquids that, that kids are purchasing online, they are being made in really disgusting situations. So, you know, educators and parents might like to to watch that episode with their kids um, and use that as a sort of a as a talking point and as a starting point rather than sort of lecturing them about don't use this product. It could it could create, you know, an opportunity for discussion and dialogue.
1: I think that's a great way to finish. Thank you both so much indeed for your insights on what obviously is a very thorny issue uh, amongst young Australians if we want to protect their health. Susan, Michelle, thank you. Thank you. Professor Susan Sawyer, Director of the RCH Centre for Adolescent Health and Dr. Michelle John Janellis, I should say, Senior Research Fellow at the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Here's a text as an example of what's coming in. Hi, my daughter at high school in Canberra reports year seven and eight students vaping every day in the toilets and even in class. And I think one of the issues there, of course, is that often vaping smoke doesn't smell. And once it dissipates, you don't necessarily know where it came from. It's insidious, isn't it? You're with Life Matters. And as part of Life Matters 30 year celebration, as you know, we've been looking back at some of our memorable interviews. And the one you're about to hear now involves two young women fleeing to Australia and the educator who showed them what's possible. The host for this is Julie McCrossan. Listen closely because I have a surprise for you afterwards. That's all coming up next.
4: Hi, I'm David Rutledge, and I hope you can join me with the religion and ethics team for a special Good Friday edition of RN Breakfast. From the Easter story in Western art to personal stories of connection and faith, we're going to be walking the pilgrim paths of Ireland and learning about the holy language of biblical Hebrew. There's also sacred music curated for the day and some reflections on a time of great change for all of us that's good friday on rn breakfast
1: this year life matters turns 30 and to celebrate we've taken one interview from every year we've been with you so let's spin that wheel and see which year we play today it's 2005.
0: it gives me so much pleasure to welcome Nahid Karimi, Sayed Reza Musawi, and Nuria Wazafardost all from Afghanistan and all students at Holroyd High School in Western Sydney and welcome also to their principal Dorothy Hodnot Dorothy, good morning and uh, perhaps we should begin by hearing how many children from non-English speaking backgrounds are at your school
5: Well, we we really have two schools within the one school. I have uh, the high school, which is year 7 to 12, and I've got an intensive English centre, one of 14 in New South Wales, most of them in Sydney. And that's where children from non-English speaking background first come when they come into high school in Australia. They spend three to four terms in the intensive centre learning English and learning about going to school in Australia, and then they move into high school.
0: And about how many students do you have in your intensive centre?
5: Well, I've got uh, I've got probably about 180 at the moment, but it varies between 180 and about 240
0: at any stage during the year. And, and roughly, what proportion of them would be uh, children who've come as asylum seekers or refugees? Oh, it's a fairly well. It's a fairly high proportion come as
5: refugees. Probably the majority of those children now, but uh, asylum seekers. It's um, not as large as it was. So probably about 10% maximum, and uh, more recently, of course, much lower numbers.
0: And uh, in the total school population, the big school, uh, how many different languages would be spoken by your students?
5: Well, we have about 47 different languages spoken in the school, including, of course, English, which is still the largest language group spoken in the school.
0: That's extraordinary, isn't it? Do your teachers have special training?
5: (laughs) not in speaking other languages. No, but they do have special training and in our school, a lot of our teachers have done a course to help them deal with non-English speaking background children in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of our teachers have also had training from STARTS, which is the organisation that looks after victims of torture and trauma mm. and that's to enable them to deal sympathetically with children who may be traumatised
0: uh, I'd like now to uh, welcome Nuria to Life Matters Nuria was a Fardost uh, how did you come to Australia? You had your family with you, didn't you? You weren't yeah. alone
6: Yeah,
7: we came to Pakistan because we are in uh, immediate danger and when we came to Pakistan then uh, the smuggler told us to go to Australia because it has a good reputation of human rights then after that we, we had no idea about uh, the countries around us so we we listened to the smuggler and we came to Australia and they sent us to Indonesia We went, and my mother was during this journey she was pregnant and she had a caesarean in Indonesia she was in hospital for 10 days after the 10 days being in a hospital we moved on to the boat and we were in the boat for 10 days and it was really very really hard for my mother
1: you're listening to an interview from the archives of Life Matters as we celebrate 30 years on Radio National.
7: What was the boat like? The boat was a really leaky boat, fishing boat, very small, 100 people in it, all were sick and they were vomiting, it was really very bad condition, no food, nothing and... It was a really bad smell around it as well and all people were feeling sick. But they were all hopeful that they will be having a new life, a new chance. Did you, you know. ever
0: think, oh, I wish we'd stayed back in Afghanistan?
7: No, I didn't because it was the same thing as being in Afghanistan or being in a boat or anywhere. Because it's all war. We were in danger in Afghanistan as well. So it wasn't any making any change because in both situations we were about to die. How old were you when you got on the boat? Fourteen and a half. Back in Afghanistan, had you been able to go to school? Well, we didn't have any like, formal school or formal education. It depends on the time. If uh, like the Taliban or Afghan men, some of them, they, they weren't around, we would uh, attend to a house school
0: house school. Yeah. So did your uh, family want you to have an
7: education yes. even
0: though the Taliban were forbidding it? Yeah, it yeah, would. And, and so what is house school? Can you give us a sense? Was it
7: a a, a secret thing you had to be careful when you yeah. went there? Yeah, and we ha- it, it was like a secret and the boys and girls they were all separated.
0: You were in the Curtin Detention Centre with your
7: family, weren't yeah, you? How yeah. long were you there? Uh, two months.
0: Oh, I see. You, you speak very good English. Did you learn English in Afghanistan? No. Dorothy, how rapid is the acquisition of English in your experience with these students?
5: Well, it has to to be rapid. If they're going to come into the school system, they really have to concentrate and focus on learning English. And a lot of the children who are coming to us as refugees have not had very much formal education. That's why it's called an intensive English centre. It's because the the learning of English is intensive and it's meant to get them school-ready in three to four terms only.
0: I was going to say that. So you aim to get the children at, into mainstream schooling yep. within two to three terms? No, three to, three four, to terms. four terms. Three to four terms. And do, and do the majority achieve that? Yes, absolutely. On Life Matters this morning, I'm speaking to three teenagers who've come to Australia, as you hear, as asylum seekers, refugees. I'm also speaking to their school principal, the principal of Holroyd High School uh, in, in Sydney. Uh, let's come to Naheed. We haven't met you yet. Good morning.
6: Good morning. Good <laughs> morning.
0: I'm fascinated on what it's like. Before I go to your family story, which I will do in a moment, can you remember the moment of coming to your first Australian classroom for the first time? Not not the intensive language centre, but the mainstream class. How did you
6: feel about that? I felt like I have everything as other people in Australia have. I thought I have all the freedom, all the opportunities and responsibilities that other Australians do, so... It was my first chance of being in class and being accepted as a human who have all the rights to study and have educated and be educated in a, in a big country. So it was like a really good chance for me. And boys and girls in the classroom? Yeah, they were both boys and girls. And when you were in Afghanistan, had you had any formal education? I didn't have formal education. I was studying secretly by our neighbours so she was a teacher. So She was um, teaching us um, three or four hours a week, and it was a great opportunity for me to at least learn a bit. It was better than nothing.
0: But, yes, back in Afghanistan, that teacher, the, the local neighbour, what did she try to teach you in those three or four hours?
6: Um, as she was a teacher, because she was an Iranian person and he, she was married to an Afghan man, um, she had to come back to her husband's country so um, she didn't have any job there and because she was a teacher she knew everything and she had some books so she was able to teach us from those books. Now
0: Dorothy the principal of Holroyd High School has just giggled and wiggled with pleasure at the suggestion that because she's a teacher she knows everything. Is there (laughs) is there a pleasure in teaching Students who are so enormously keen to learn. I'd say,
5: first of all, there's a pleasure in teaching. Full stop. That's that's the first thing. And these students are are examples of of a good teaching. They've had good teaching in my school, and I'm very pleased with that. Yeah. But yes, there is a huge pleasure. What your listeners won't know is that Syed, for example, had never been to school of any kind when he came to us, and in the four years that he's been with us, he's learned not only to speak english fluently and to be able to face up to a radio interview but to read and write to a high level and it might be of interest to people to know the subjects that these young people are undertaking after such a very small time in australia and such relatively small period of formal education i guess they could tell you their subjects
4: well
6: let me ask nahid what are you studying I'm studying science, um, chemistry, biology, physics, maths and English. And how did you catch up? Because
0: presumably many of your fellow students had had some extra years in those subjects.
6: Well, I see it's my responsibility to study and I really love to be an educated person. So I will have all my chance and I will have all my time to study. So. I'll try my best for everything. And,
0: and so tell me about coming out here, you're, you're with your family, you didn't come alone like Saeed, you came with your family.
6: Well, my journey started when my father had to leave my country because Taliban killed his father and his um, youngest brother and they, was, they were after him. So we have to leave the country as soon as possible and we left it within two days.
0: As a girl, could you imagine going back to Afghanistan? I'm just thinking you, you've experienced Aussie freedom, haven't you, yes, as I a did. woman? Yes, I did. Tell me about that. What's that mean to you?
6: It, being freedom, it's like being alive for me. If it took away from me, I think I'm, I will be someone who is dead.
0: And are your mum and dad comfortable with the freedom you have as a woman here?
6: They do, because they know that I can use it in the best way I can.
0: What's your hope for the future for yourself if you can stay
6: if I stay here, I will I hope that I will become someone important, not really like political, but someone who can help other people in the way they which they did for me. What sort
0: of job would you like to do when you grow up?
6: I would like to study medicine, and i really love to be a doctor, but I'm not sure if I can do it. My guests have been Nahid Karimi and
0: Nuri Awazafardost, and also thank you so much to their school principal, a great tribute to public school education, Dorothy Hodnot.
1: Celebrating 30 years of non-stop conversation. Life Matters on ABC Radio National. You've just heard an excerpt from a Life Matters archival program from 2005 and you can find a longer version of that conversation on our website and wherever you like to get your podcasts. But don't go there yet because it's kind of beautiful. With me right now are two of those young Afghan refugees you heard from 17 years ago. Nahid Karimi is now Nahid Nori, and also here is Noria Wazifadust. And Nahid, Noria, welcome back to Life Matters.
6: Oh, Hi, Noria. Hi, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I need to hear your voices.
1: <laughs> I take it it's been a while since you two have spoken.
8: Yes, yes, it's been a been. while.
9: I do miss you, Nahid. And you always sound so beautiful. It Lots of kiss and harder. hugs. Yes, and it, right. It's quite
1: amazing <laughs> to hear you two as, you know, grown people uh, sounding so confident and happy and bright and not that you weren't 17 years ago, but, you know, you were teenagers then and now look at you. So, Nahid, can I start with you? What has been happening to you in terms of life for the last 17 years?
8: It's been a rollercoaster, to be honest. I have done uni, left at part-time and got married, been working as a mum, as a wife and uh, being back to uni, still working—it's just been nonstop, nonstop.
1: And I think you talk about this in the original interview, but did you go to uni to study medical science?
8: Yes, I did, and I did go ahead till two and a half years. And when I got married, I was like, you know what? I will just stay a little bit off it for six months, and that six months went on for more than eight and a half years. So
1: <laughs> but now you're back? And
8: I went. Yes, I am back and I'm determined to finish it, hopefully, and pursue to something else.
1: And also, aside from pursuing study and education, didn't you also end up doing some interpreter work for other refugees?
8: Yes, I am still a professional interpreter. I've been doing this for the past easy 14 years. Golly. And I love it because I can see so many people who were in my shoes and are in my PB's shoes. And uh, it, it's an honor for me to be able to help them and guide them and give them anything that I didn't have when I needed it. And it's it's a great opportunity to do everything for every kind of Australians in Australia.
1: It must be so wonderful, too, for those people seeking asylum in Australia, uh, having someone who's been through the refugee experience, the fear, the stress, the escape, the worrying, uh, now interpreting for them. I mean, there could be nothing more comforting, I would have thought.
8: To be honest, that was my whole point when I first decided that I would go ahead and be a professional interpreter. It was just a simple advice from a very dear friend of mine and um, it didn't take me more than half an hour to decide, you know what, I'll go ahead. I asked my parents, even though it was in other city jobs and uh, my parents, just, I love them. Being very open-minded um, allowed me and they, I, I did go to other cities. I did go to other detention centers. I ended up going to Christmas Island when I first, Came to Australia. Yes. So, yeah, it, it was an amazing journey, opportunity, and I think I used it wisely because um, I gave everything that I wanted to have to those who needed help.
1: Some of those people who needed help while you were on Christmas Island, I think, were some of the Afghan refugees who made it to shore after that terrible shipwreck.
8: Yes, it wasn't only Afghans, to be honest. There were Iranians, they were Arabic people speaking. Um, Even though I couldn't communicate perfectly with them, I tried to assure them that this is not the end and there's always better chances coming up and they should never give up because um, what they went through was unbelievable. But yes, I, I I did try to give them as much as I can with so many restrictions that were around us. Yes. But yes. Yes, it it was challenging for me, for them. It brought back so many memories. But the person who I am is um I like challenges in life and I don't want to run away from reality and if something has been bothering me I want to face it, resolve it and then put it over. And to be honest, that whole challenging thing when I was in detention center and the but that was cat science and people died. And it was just a very bad memory for me. Going back to it, having flashbacks, um, brought all those memories back, but mm. it made me stronger. It made me realize that, you know what, no matter how many years pass from that time, things happen over and over and you just got to get stronger.
1: I understand, Nahid, that you've interpreted for at least a thousand people uh, who have been seeking asylum. And what are some of the pieces of advice you try to hand on to those people who are going through what you went through so many years earlier?
8: They can do anything that they want. If they want to reach the moon and they don't know the language, believe me, they can do it. But the, the only thing when people come to Australia is that the language is the hardest thing for them to learn and also fit into the society. If they want it, they can do it. If they want to go to the moon, this is the land of opportunity and they can do it.
1: And Nahid, how much of a role did education at Holrood School do for you?
8: Everything, everything, everything. Everything that I have is based on the education that I received in Holrood because... I had amazing teachers, I had amazing principal, I've had amazing friends who helped me through every single struggle, you know? Coming to a country, not having anyone, not knowing anything, it's um, quite shattering for a little girl, especially for someone who never was given hope, never was given the opportunity, and uh, coming to this land, Everything was given to me, and all the support that I needed was given not only from my family, but from the loved ones, mostly Mrs. Hodenot, my teachers, my friends. Every single one of these was a hand to push my back and say, you know what, if you want to go ahead, go ahead, you can do it. Mm.
1: Nouria Wazifadust, I'm imagining that some of what uh, Nahid has just related to us in her life over the last 17 years must also strike a chord with you.
9: Yes, definitely, definitely. We have so much common, I and Nahid. And um, for me, after 17 years, few milestones which had my life absolutely meaningful and joyful The first and most important thing that I have to mention today is being my permanent or citizenship. And I'm not living in limbo anymore under temporary protection visa.
1: Congratulations.
9: Yes, that means a lot to me and my family. To be honest, I'm very nervous. Oh, are you? Taking a deep breath. Yeah, because (laughs) when I look back, having a TPV, it actually scares me again like not knowing what's going to happen in the future. But I am so grateful and happy that I have passed that stage of my life.
1: Well, I talked about Holroyd there to Nahid, and I'd like to talk to you as well about this, Norea, because uh, after your education, you ended up working at Holroyd, didn't you? Yes.
9: Yes, I did end up going working there as a refugee um, community liaison officer and as a teacher aide. I had two different roles there. I've been working there for about more than seven years working closely with um, refugee kids and students and their family and because of what I have been through and having similar experiences, trauma, and I had the passion and deep understanding of the behavior and feelings of those refugee kids and I think this threw up upon my strong ability in building positive relationship with the um, students and their parents and the community as a whole. And um, through my work, actually, I helped many kids, many students, from uh, many girls especially, uh, from domestic violence and forced marriage, which I'm proud of it, to be honest.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. So you were able to resolve issues around family violence and traditions like forced marriage uh, as that counsellor kind of liaison person for those yes. families. Yeah. That must have been quite quite a challenge. It was a
9: big challenge, but um, what actually helped me through is the connection and the trust has been built between me and the kids and the parents and walking them through saying that life is different here in Australia. Women and girls are free and they can choose what they want to do and what they want to be and it's not you don't have to bring your own old belief or listen to the man of the family not disrespecting them, but doing the right thing by your own self and for your future. So, yeah, it was a bit challenging.
1: And, you know, it it might be 17 years since you came here, Nouria, but the very issues that you've been advising on since you got here and the very ones you were fleeing from with Taliban holding control have happened again. And now, of course, we're seeing the same conditions for girls and women in Afghanistan, would, Unfortunately, Yeah, that you were wanting to not be part of anymore. Clamped down on being allowed on the streets, clampdowns on education, having to be in the company of male family members. Uh, it, it must be hard to look back on the old home country and see this reoccurring.
9: Yes, it actually uh, breaks my heart that the situation of my country is being worse than 17 years ago, and many of my people have escaped, and many of women and girls are actually still stuck in the country and fighting for their rights, and they're looking for a way to flee the persecution. It does break my heart, and I hope that the situation for the girls and women back in my home country change. It's just unfair what's happening to them. It's just inhuman.
1: Nahi, hey, do you have any family left in Afghanistan?
8: Yes, I have a lot of family left in there. I've got so many cousins who are there who were about to finish their degrees. They were about to finish their high school. Um, little ones going to start school. Um, any age you can think of. For each one of them, it's a loss. If you've studied for twenty years and you just like six months ahead to finish it up, that's a big loss and for the little one who hasn't even started, their little alphabet is the biggest loss because they will miss out of all the fun things that every child will have when they go to King View or u one so it's a it's a very unfortunate event. they don't allow anything like useful things to happen. I I don't know how their mentality is and what they think of, Mm. but it's very unfortunate.
1: Well, Nahid and Naria, you are two living examples of what happens when refugees who are allowed freedom in a new country, albeit after detention, um, are given also the freedom to be educated, to be curious, to learn and to grow. And it's been an absolute delight to hear about your live, 17 years on since that first interview with Julie McCrossan on Life Matters. And I thank you so much, both of you, for coming on.
8: Thank you so much, Michael. And I'm so proud of you, Norea, for what you're doing. Um, oh. It must be challenging. And thank you so much, Michael, also, because no. what you're doing right now um, is a big step for so many other girls and boys and newcomers who don't have any hope in having a future in a new country. And yes. I hope that that's a door for them to know that, you know what, if they want to reach the moon, they can reach the moon. And this is the land yeah. of opportunity. All Oh, that's so deadly.
9: Thank you, Nahid. Same here. And having three boys, I think I have a big responsibility to teach them to respect themselves and respect women and girls in the future. I got a long way to achieve that. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, and um, I'm so happy. Yeah, I'm so happy that you're well and you're happy. And I wish you you all the
8: best, too. Likewise. Likewise. And you too, Michael.
1: Thank you so much for your time. Thank you both so much indeed. Thank it's been Thank you, great. Michael. Thank
8: My you. My pleasure.
1: With me now is the renowned educator from Holroyd School who made sure refugees like Nahid and Norea felt they had a voice through education in their new country. Dorothy Hottonot was principal there for 23 years at that school and her contributions have seen her garner many awards. And Dorothy, as I said to the two others, welcome back to Life Matters.
10: Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be on air again.
1: Seventeen years later, on this story, uh, we just heard Nahid and Naria uh, acknowledge the role you, the teachers, and the school still continue to play in their lives and thinking. That must give you great joy.
10: Yes, it does. It's um, it's it's part of what education should be doing for young people. It's it's not simply sitting in a classroom, going over and over the three Rs. It's it's actually making it's helping people realize their potential and it's making good citizens out of the people who come to our schools.
1: You know I was just thinking as you were speaking there Dorothy that there are so many students across the education system in this country who come from traumatic backgrounds they don't have to be fleeing a regime in a foreign country to come to school with already challenges uh, in their lives do you think our education system is rising to those challenges? Uh,
10: I think it's very difficult for uh, what's an incre- increasingly divided education system to rise to those uh, challenges. You know, the, um, uh, the split between private and public over over the last twenty years, in particular, has has congregated uh, disadvantage, particularly in public schools, and and that that. Uh, uh, what can I say? That intensification of disadvantage makes it very much harder for individual schools to deal with to deal with the the challenges that they face. These are these are challenges. I think you should say rather than problems. Sure. But, but you know, the for, for a lot of schools, the lack of resource and um, uh, the feeling that you have. Constraints around what you can do make it much harder to support children. We had children from um, from refugee backgrounds. We had asylum seeker children. We had children from the underclass, the Australian Anglo underclass in the school, who 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 had been subject to generational unemployment and a lack of a lack of hope for the future, which is uh, uh, fairly significant. And and children who had been abused. uh, children with disabilities, uh, children who just didn't fit in anywhere else. And what the school tried to do was to rise the occasion for each and every one of those children. And by and large, we were successful. It, it, meant, just- it meant investment, I have to say, in, in people to support those children rather than Um, things like electronic
1: whiteboards. (laughs) Well, point well made, Dorothy. Just quickly, in the seconds we have left, how many of those children from those backgrounds you've just described went on, in a way perhaps they weren't expected to, to further education?
10: Well, a very high proportion went on. You know, uh, in 2007, when the Bradley Review looked at tertiary education, they found that only about 30% of children in the mainstream were going on to t- tertiary education. Only about 15% of children from the, the lowest uh, quartile of socioeconomic status. And we had 65% of our, our students in that bottom quartile. Uh, what, what, I, what we did was to raise the expectations of, of, of the, the entire student body and to and to work with them over a variety of programs to give them the means to access tertiary education not high octiles but 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 getting in it's getting a foot in the door that's really important indeed it is and over those years we moved we moved up from you know from uh, we we went from about 30% uh, university entry up to the last 3 years that I was principal we averaged 60% first round university offers with our with our HSC cohort.
1: Congratulations, Dorothy! Unfortunately, we run out of time, but it's oh. those kind of moments of encouragement that really help us see a future ahead. And I do thank you very much indeed for coming on, Dorothy Hottenott, who's been awarded an Order of Australia and presiding uh, pro chancellor at Sydney University as well. After running Holroyd School for twenty three years, you're with Life Matters. Let's go straight to Angela Owens and comments and reactions. Hello. Hello. Look, uh,
4: people have been quite moved by the the story. Catherine in Canberra says, overwhelmed by the interview with the girls just now, so much is wonderful about this beautiful country, so much to be proud of. Jen, along a similar line, says, what a breath of fresh air listening to those gorgeous Afghan refugee children speaking about their aspirations. We're blessed to have them, now inspiring adults. Thank you, for our refugees, they were a blessing to Australia. Mm. Lots of comments about vaping too, Michael. As you yes. can tell from our Facebook page, you can add your comments there. We were asking people about their strategies. Um, someone said appealing to the teens' vanity would be more effective than appealing to their health concerns. The possibility of hair loss now might be more scary than the idea of cancer in 30 years. I think
1: someone else said skin wrinkles as well. Uh, Yes,
4: Mandy was saying uh, causing wrinkles that might deter
1: uh, some people. (laughs) <laughs> amazing that's great and look I've got some here from Facebook as well Jackie says I would like to see a graphic ad campaign on vaping with true life experiences discussed on TV and social media a teen will say it's better than smoking clear and concise campaigning against vaping back of toilet doors says Jackie mm. is a good start as well and try and increase regulation for sure but I feel young people will try and access it somehow and that's of course that whole thing of, if it's underground it's more attractive. Yeah.
4: And Lisa mentioned that coming from a family of smokers that now suffer from emphysema, when I first heard that vaping was not being made illegal in Australia, I was gobsmacked, not to say furious. After all the years of deception about smoking by companies, it just made no sense. Just some of the
1: comments. Fantastic. We'll have more of the, your reactions in the inbox for next Monday. That's Angela Owens there. And coming up next time on Life Matters, another one of our landmark interviews from the Ark celebrating the fact that we've turned 30 this year and this interview is with former host Geraldine Doug maneuvering her way through an often at times difficult conversation with one Angie Bowie yes that's right the former partner of David Bowie Angie uh, I think has been renowned over times for being a little prickly and uh, we look forward to you hearing that conversation next time on life matters Michael McKenzie saying bye for now